In this book, you'll remember that we have been called to live with one another in the unity of Christ, that unity which he purchased at the price of his own blood and established by the giving of the Spirit to his people. And we've been considering in the last number of weeks the examples that the Apostle Paul has held before us. We saw in the early part of chapter 2 that he held up the illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very pinnacle and perfect example of humility and sacrifice. And then Paul spoke a bit about his own life, that he was glad and even joyful to sacrifice, to pour his life out as a drink offering. A couple of weeks ago, we saw Timothy, that he was a man of proven worth, who was not out for his own interests, but he genuinely was out for the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, this morning, will come to his final example in this chapter, a man with a five-syllable name, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. The question is, who is this man and why is he to be thought so highly of? Well, let's read together, beginning in verse 25, Philippians 2 and verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Who is this man and why are we to regard him highly? Well, first of all, Timothy or, or Epaphroditus is a man of Christian character. That is our first head. He is a man of Christian character. What do I mean by that? Well, we'll see as we move through it. But the, the point is that Epaphroditus is not someone out of the ordinary. He's not someone who is undeniably super remarkable, some kind of Christian of another cloth. He's a faithful believer. This all begins really with a little bit of background from chapter 4, if you want to look over there in verses 15 to 18. He tells the Philippians, he says, you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. You guys were the ones who supported me, he says. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Now look at verse 18. I want you to know I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma and an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Epaphroditus had been sent on a mission by the Philippians with significant responsibility entrusted to him. He was commissioned by the church to bring a financial gift to meet Paul's needs. And in addition to that, not only to bring a financial gift, but to stay with Paul and to serve Paul as long as he had need. A number of you women perhaps have come alongside your younger daughters after they've had a baby and you've served them, you've cooked for them, you've provided for them whatever they needed to, to give them extended care. That's, in essence, what, what Epaphroditus did for Paul. Paul, you remember, was in prison and he was in need. And Epaphroditus is the guy that they send. Now think about that for a minute. What does that tell you about this man, Epaphroditus? It tells you that he is a trusted man. 
You know, you, you think about this in the first century, a sack full of money, an 800-mile journey, pretty easy to slip off with things and get lost, never to be seen again. Maybe skim a little, maybe pull a little Judas, right, who loved to pilfer from the money box. When they put this money in Epaphroditus' hands, they were saying something about him. When they sent him as their emissary to Paul to care for Paul's needs, they loved Paul, and this also said something about this man. Epaphroditus was not a lover of money, he was a lover of God. Epaphroditus did not have sticky fingers, no, he was a man of integrity. And this is how Epaphroditus found himself in Rome. He went as a servant to Paul, as a servant certainly to the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a servant to the Philippian church. The text tells us that he went there as a messenger and as a minister. So he's a, he's a courier, and he takes this money to Paul. Time has passed, and now Paul is sending him back to Philippi with the very letter that we're studying in his hand. Paul, on the one hand, certainly must have enjoyed the help that Epaphroditus brought and the encouragement and the fellowship and all of that. And Paul doesn't want to, want to let this faithful man go, but if you look at verse 25, we're told that he thought it was necessary to send to the Philippians this man, Epaphroditus. And then he begins to lay out really what is a letter of recommendation. We considered this question a couple of weeks ago as we thought about Timothy. Why not just send Timothy? Why all the all the biographical information, why all the, all the compliments, all, the, all the, the, the praise and the honor being bestowed upon these men? Why, why write all this down? Why is Paul putting this into this letter? Why is he telling the Philippians, look, Epaphroditus is the real deal. He's a, he's, he's a guy. He's, he knows Christ and he served faithfully. He's a man worth modeling your life after. He is a faithful guy. Well, certainly it's a letter of recommendation. And in this letter of recommendation, Paul commends five attributes, virtues really, in this man's life. And you can't read through this without getting a sense of the, the camaraderie and the, the commonality, the affection that these two men must have shared for one another. Certainly Paul towards Epaphroditus. And Paul just gives accolade after accolade. Look at verse 25 again. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Why write all that? Well, he's holding Epaphroditus up. And he lays out these five accolades, these five statements, certainly of fact. But I think as you think about them, they're more than simply fact. What is he saying about Epaphroditus? Well, here's the first thing. Epaphroditus is a man of genuine faith. This guy's the real deal. He's a true believer. Paul calls him that. He's a brother. Paul and Epaphroditus were not related by blood. They, they were related by the Spirit and the fact that they'd both been born again. They were truly in Christ. And Paul knows Epaphroditus as a true brother. He is really and genuinely in the family of God. He's a brother in Christ. And that is a word, as I've told you before, that Paul treasures. I treasure it. I trust you treasure it. It's not just some antiquated designation. It's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to, to recognize that we are called together into the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul thinks of this man and he thinks of him as a true brother. And beyond that, he says, my brother. There's a sense of familiar affection in that. He throws his arm around Epaphroditus and says, my brother. And Paul loved this man and was grateful for him and elevated him. And not just Epaphroditus was not one who only came to minister to Paul's needs and drop off a bag of money. No, Paul, 
Paul loved this man and they were brothers indeed and they are united, not only in the faith, but also in the work. Look at the next thing he says. He says that Epaphroditus is a laborer in the cause of Christ. Epaphroditus is diligent in gospel ministry. Paul calls him a fellow worker. There are 12 other times that Paul uses this phrase in the New Testament. And Epaphroditus stands in good company. It was a title that he shares with the likes of Apollos, Aquila and Priscilla, Aristarchus, Clement, Mark, Onesimus, Philemon, Timothy, Titus, Tychicus. He's in good company as a fellow worker. He was a gospel worker. He preached the gospel to the unbelieving and he sought to strengthen and encourage the faith of the saints. Beloved, can I say to you this morning that the church is ever in need of of these first two things. Genuine believers, not every church and every person who sits in every pew is the real deal and Paul knew that full well. This was a real believer who really worked. He was about the business. He wasn't playing at religion. He wasn't just taking in. No, he was engaged in the cause of Christ, pouring himself out on behalf of Paul and the Philippians and the lost and encouraging the saints. He was a worker in the ministry. The cause of Christ is always in need of workers. What did Jesus say? The fields are what? Ripe for harvest, but the workers, the laborers, they're few. Pray that God would send workers into the field. Beloved, are you a worker for the Lord Jesus Christ? God the Father, Jesus said, is a worker. Jesus himself said we must work while it is day, for a night is coming when no man can work. Paul was a worker, the disciples were workers, and every disciple of Christ is called to be a a worker for the kingdom. Every disciple is called, spiritually speaking, to have calloused hands and and a sweaty brow. What did Paul tell us in Ephesians 2.10? That we are his workmanship created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is our call. And Epaphroditus, by Paul's assessment, was a fellow worker. And of some in the church, Paul couldn't say that. And so he recommends Epaphroditus as one to be followed. And Paul employs a third figure. He says that Epaphroditus was one who was courageous in battle. He was courageous in spiritual battle. Paul calls him a fellow soldier. Why use that? Why use that phrase, that imagery of a soldier? Because that's, beloved, again, is what we are called to be in Christ. Soldiers in the the midst of a spiritual battle. And Epaphroditus had suffered faithfully as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very figure implies that Epaphroditus had been fighting a fight of spiritual opposition. He had joined Paul, if you will, on the front lines. He was battle-tested. He defended the truth. He advanced on the enemy. He was one who, who, who engaged the battle. He defended the truth and he advanced and he had been shot at. He had taken flack for Christ. He had scars and he had suffered for the gospel. He nearly died at least once, if not twice, for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in effect, was pinning a purple heart on this man. And there are few bonds as strong as those that are forged in the trials of war. Can you imagine what Paul felt for Epaphroditus, his brother-in-arms, this fellow soldier? Fourthly, Epaphroditus is faithful in the tasks that are assigned to him. And we've already talked about this a little bit, but he was a trustworthy man. He was a courier. He was, Paul says, your messenger. The word literally is apostle. He was one that was sent. Now, he was not an apostle sent by Christ as an apostle. He was sent out from the church at Philippi to minister to Paul to carry this money. Fifthly, he says that Epaphroditus was a sacrificial servant. Paul describes him as a minister to my need. 
William Hendrickson, in his commentary, sums this up well. He says, Epaphroditus has been sent both to bring a gift and to be a gift from the Philippians to Paul. And Epaphroditus served Paul. Now, again, it's easy to read those things and go, uh-huh, great, that's great. But I want you to think about it. Epaphroditus had to relocate. Did he have a wife? Did he have children? Did he have a job, a career? 800 miles, we want you to go to this man and we want you to serve him faithfully. Carry this money. You just put down your aspirations. You put down your will. You put down your life. You let the stuff in Philippi go. We want you to go up there and take care of him in the name of Jesus Christ. Yes, sir, I'll do it. He was a sacrificial servant. He was willing to have his life disrupted. He was willing to set aside career advancement. He was, he was willing to, to, to let go of this world to, to seek another and to serve another. It's quite a resume, isn't it? All that Paul would say in this one verse. It's funny to me as I sat thinking about it, this letter was read publicly to the Philippians, undoubtedly with Epaphroditus in their midst, and you've got to wonder if he was just blushing. This is an apostolic commendation of your life being read in front of the entire church. Beyond that, Paul wrote, as you know and believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just Paul's assessment of Epaphroditus' life. This is the Lord's assessment of this man's life. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to be sitting there somewhere in the front row where the good students sit? And, and, and I, I'm joking. But, you know... <laughs> Epaphroditus just being, just being praised. I mean, it is one thing to be bejeweled publicly by your mother. But this is the apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, giving the assessment of the Lord upon this man's life. It's so impressive. And yet, if you think about it, Epaphroditus is not a giant of Scripture. His name is mentioned four times in the New Testament, all of them found in the book of Philippians. That's it. That's all we have. He was just a humble servant who faithfully carried out whatever he could to the glory of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel and the betterment of the church, these were the things he was devoted to. He was, he was a, a living sacrifice to the Lord his God. I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago as we concluded with Timothy, but the vast majority of Christians throughout time will never be named in the annals of church history most of us will never earn a name for ourselves. The vast, vast majority of Christians will be received into glory having been forgotten entirely upon earth, certainly within a generation. And that's exactly what would have happened to this man were it not for the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. We'd have never known him. And for most of us, beloved, it is for us to be Epaphroditus. Not Moses, not Paul, not Luther, not Calvin. I could keep going on. So many are, are, are timid and sort of toned down in their service to the Lord because... Uh, I'm just a little discouraged. Nobody seems to really notice. I don't think Epaphroditus was, was clicking off boxes and hoping somehow that he'd get a big boost by Paul the influencer. I don't think so at all. He was just serving Christ. Now listen, I, I want to say it in the same breath. We live in a day of celebrity. We live in a day of likes and followers. That's true in the culture. And sadly, it's true in the church. 
And I would say this, that, that those that the Lord has elevated, we praise God, don't we, for those very public and prominent people who are faithful to the truth of the word of God. Their lives exemplify the gospel well. We say to them, may God continue to, to bring more influence to those lives and may the, the truth spread mightily. But beloved, we must not shrink back from living faithfully like Epaphroditus because our name is not up in lights. For the vast majority of us, we are small people serving in small ways, in small places. And here's the thing. None of it's small in God's economy. Little is much when God is in it. If you were to sit down and write a list of all the big, big names that you know throughout history and in the, in the Bible, how long would the list be? Could you come up with 2,000 names? 1,000? 500? 20? <laughs> Because it depends how much history you've read and how well acquainted you are with the Bible, but you get the point, right? Of the millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians throughout history whom Christ redeemed with his own blood, the vast, vast, vast majority of them will serve in some sort of anonymity and praise be to Jesus. <laughs> That's what it is. It's about him, is it not? Beloved, we should be busy as bees serving the Lord in whatever station he has given to us and with gladness of heart. That is Epaphroditus. That is, is us. And this should come. He should come. The fact that the Lord saw fit to put this little inspired piece of scripture in, in our Bible should encourage us because we're like him. Listen to Kent Hughes. He was the pastor at Wheaton Church for a while, campus church. Quote, Epaphroditus served in no public capacity. He did not shepherd a flock as did Timothy. He did not take the gospel to an unreached area. He did not receive special revelation and he wrote nothing. All he did was faithfully discharge his duty by delivering a bag of money to Paul and then looking after him. And yet he is called by Paul brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and my minister. We must understand that to serve in some unnoticed, unrecognized place in the body of Christ is as much, as the, is as much the work of Christ as public ministry, end quote. It's right there in the text, isn't it, that Paul's, Paul's inspired assessment of this man's life he says, here, here, here's the way you're to receive him. You're to think very, very highly about him. It may seem small to you. He may just be Epaphroditus to you. But here's where he is in the kingdom of God. And you, you are to think highly about him. You are to pattern your life after men like these. Why would Paul even have to write that? And I think the answer is that some, perhaps in Philippi, apparently didn't see Epaphroditus as much. He would have been perhaps really easy to overlook. At some level, we are this man. You understand this, right? This is why I said this is nothing really out of the normal. This is just Christian character. Think about what was just said about Epaphroditus. He was a genuine brother in Christ. He was a fellow worker in the gospel. He was called and enlisted as a soldier into spiritual battle. He, he, like us, we're messengers, are we not? Were we not given a message to carry? He was a minister to the needs, not of himself, but of others. Are we not called to every single one 
of these things. What Christian is there that shouldn't be characterized by all five of those things? You see, the circumstances is different, are different, but, but the call is not. And you don't have to have a public, far-reaching ministry where, where thousands flock to hear you or to know about you or to acknowledge your great sacrifice for Christ. You just need to do it in the small place where he has placed you and me. And we want to be faithful to that task. And I rejoice that there are so many around here who are doing that very thing. I, I told Rachel and Charles this morning, as, as I met, greeted them, uh, I wish I could preach for two hours. I wish I could tell you the things I hear about through the week. I really do. Because most of them you'll never know about. You'll never know about. You'll probably never know about those who vested their time yesterday. I, I won't go two hours, I promise. But you'll probably never know about those who vested their time uh, yesterday uh, helping a family in this church move from one place to the next. That, and that's happened time and time again, you know this. And you'll probably never know about the couple who went out to dinner for their anniversary. Someone in this church found out about it and just called up the restaurant and bought their dinner. You'll never know, you'll never know about someone's material need and the fact that they needed a vehicle to, to get to a new job. You'll never know about the brothers in Christ here who took the initiative to find a car and to make the purchase. You'll never know about the offers that were made to individuals who needed a place to stay when they were displaced by the fire. And I could just go on and on and on. And this is week by week by week. I have the greatest job on the planet. I really do. It's amazing to me. The beauty of the church of Christ is something else. It is something else. And that's what's being held up here. This is why Paul encourages the Galatians, and he encourages you this morning. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Why would he have to say that except that the tendency is to what? To grow weary in doing good because we don't see it. We don't see the impact. We want to flag. We want to, we want to claim our own. We just want to slink away and throw our feet up and, and rest and Paul says, no, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up. Be steadfast, he says, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not, it's not ever in vain in the Lord. Now, you get that. Why write that? Because people's tendency is to move and is to change over time and is to grow soft and, and to indulge their weariness and to just sort of slump and slide into the kingdom of heaven. Look, we're charging forward, aren't we? We should be. Let us encourage one another to love and good deeds. Dave, why do you get so loud like that? Are you angry at us? No. I'm trying to encourage you. I'm trying to help you see what's in a text like this for us. We should prize these things. We should prize men like this, people like this. We should delight and rejoice in people of faithful Christian character. That is what Epaphroditus is. Now there's a second thing Paul points us to that comes right up out of this text. You'll see it. And that is that Epaphroditus was a man of compassionate concern. He was a man of Christian character. He's also a man of compassionate concern. And we're going to move quickly. Apparently in the course of ministry to the apostle Paul, Epaphroditus got deathly ill, literally deathly ill. And somehow the message via the grapevine or some traveler or something gets all the way from Rome back to Philippi that Epaphroditus is on his deathbed. And in the intervening time, before this letter reaches the Philippians, the Lord graciously healed Epaphroditus, but the news of his healing had not made it yet to Philippi. And so somehow news gets all the way from Philippi back to Epaphroditus that the church 
is deeply concerned. They're a little panicked. They're troubled over the fact that this brother of theirs, this messenger and minister that they have sent, is about to die, and they may never see him again. Epaphroditus is concerned that the Philippians are concerned. And he wanted to get back to them to alleviate their anxiety over his well-being. And as much as Paul loved and valued Epaphroditus, Paul is concerned that Epaphroditus is concerned about the Philippians' concern about Epaphroditus. It's so good. Look at this. Verse 26. I'm going I'm to turn him back, Paul says, to you because he was longing for you all. And he was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And apparently they had very good reason to be concerned. He was, he was really sick, verse 27. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, that is Epaphroditus, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul is not being hyperbolic. It's intriguing, isn't it, that the man in an earlier chapter who said it's, I'm kind of hard-pressed here, it'd be very much better to go and to die and to go ahead and be with the Lord, to be with Christ is, is really where I want to be. And yet at the same time, he looks at Epaphroditus and the thought of losing Epaphroditus, and he goes, you know, that would bring me sorrow upon sorrow. You see, that's that unique position again in which every Christian, true believer, is able to live. We grieve, yes, but not as those without hope. We understand both sides of this equation. It is better to be with Christ, and yet it breaks our hearts when our brothers and sisters are departed from us, doesn't it? Things have not changed, have they? Epaphroditus is the one near death and he's concerned about the impact that his death will have on them. You see, he's marked by compassionate concern. Just like Jesus who gave his life for the church, just like Paul who suffers and is willing to be poured out for the church, just like Timothy who is genuinely concerned for the church, here's Epaphroditus longing for the Philippians and deeply distressed. It's a very strong word that they are taking the news of this illness and his potential death to heart and that they may be troubled. It, it is the same word that's used of Jesus in the garden when it says that he was troubled and distressed. He was troubled in spirit. You remember that? This is no light thing for Epaphroditus. He's not looking at Paul with a grin and saying, yeah, I guess I gotta get back to him. He's really bothered by this. He's feeling for the Philippians. His life is so knit to them. His concern is so deep. His heart is with them and, and so is Paul's. And so in verse 28, Paul says, therefore I have sent him, and they know that now because they're reading the letter that he brought in his hand. I've sent him all the more eagerly, Paul says, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. What a great picture of the way life should be in the church. When one rejoices, we all what? Rejoice, and when, when one mourns, we mourn with that member. And when one is sick or when one is facing the day of death, we're, we're all right there, whether personally and physically or at least in spirit. And you think of it here, the Philippians love Paul and they're so concerned for him, so they send Epaphroditus to him. And then Epaphroditus loves Paul so that he's willing to give up his life and serve him. And Paul loves his brother Epaphroditus and is so thankful that the Lord spared him, spared him from just wave upon wave of sorrow. And the Philippians are so concerned for their brother Epaphroditus that they're filled with anxiety about his well-being. And then Epaphroditus' heart is longing for the saints at Philippi and they're dist he's distressed at their distress. So he wants to go back to assure them so their hearts won't be burdened. And Paul loves the Philippians too and he wants to see their troubled hearts rejoice when they see Epaphroditus. And so he sends them all the more eagerly and this would relieve Paul's great concern for them to know that their hearts are no longer concerned about Epaphroditus. Wow. I love texts like this. Again, things have not changed. 
It's so instructive. It's so applicable. Beloved, this is why you could never just sort of go into one of those big box churches and check in as a number and check out as soon as the service ends because it has very little to do with biblical Christianity. It has very little to do with what the church actually is called to do and to be and is by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Everyone in this text is concerned for everyone else. Everyone is sincerely, not faking it, they're sincerely burdened for, for the other. Nobody, but nobody is clinging to their own interests. Joseph Hellerman wrote a book entitled When the Church Was a Family. It's an excellent book. He refers to this thing we've been talking about as affective solidarity. In other words, it's heartfelt unity. It's a unity that you know entirely, internally, and it, it, it eats you up. You, you're, you're aware of it. You're so connected and so intertwined with one another that you can't extricate yourself from it. No, instead, you're, you're constantly drawn toward one another. And again, it's not because we're all birds of a feather and cut from the same feather and therefore, you know, we all like to water ski on Saturdays so we hang out as a group. This is something that crosses every, 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 everything in life, every nationality, ethnicity, on and on and on. We are so drawn to one another, we live this thing out on a local basis. It's not just... It, it's experiential. It's not just something that's theoretical. It's not something that, well, I believe in the unity of the church. It's not just doctrinal. It is doctrine. It's true doctrine. But it's experienced in the life, and it is undeniable. It is undeniable. I went to the camp out, having studied some of these things a couple of weeks ago, I went to the camp out and I just sat in my little camp chair and relished it. I was just eating it up as I watched all this stuff going on that is just glory. People serving without wanting to be thanked, people pouring out. They could be sitting in a chair, but they were cooking. They could be just sitting there in the chair like me, but no, they were ministering and playing with kids. Thank you all for <laughs> equipping the saints for the work of ministry, right? That's what we're all about. Here's Hellerman's definition. He says it's an affective, again, that has to do with feeling. It's an affective sense of closeness and intimacy that the Holy Spirit weaves into the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ who spend time together and share life together and do ministry together. We are not talking here about that church attendance mindset. We're not talking about casual religious observance. We're not talking about that sort of loose affiliation with some place that we attend once a week. We're not talking about anonymity. We're not talking about independence. We're not talking about people who evade relationship. We're not talking about isolation. We're not talking about last to arrive and first to go. Beloved, do you see it here? I know I keep pointing it out. I know I'm probably boring you, but I'm so excited about it. And I, I have known it here, and I want it to grow. I want it to excel. I want you to pull tight. It is the way that our testimony, that, that, that dimmer switch goes whoop, it goes up and the light shines more brightly. Our gospel witness is bolder. It is by your love for one another that they will know that you are my disciples. We are family. We are tight-knit. We are unified. We are committed to one another at the deepest level. And we are very, very affectionately and intentionally intertwined with one another. So much so that we think about one another. So much so that we feel for one another. So much so 
that we are compassionately concerned for one another and we give ourselves up for one another. And that is the glory of Christ and his church. That is what a unified body looks like. It's all those parts and pieces that God placed in the body as he saw fit, working together with one another for the health of the whole. And we relish our Lord and Savior, our head, and we love to serve him. Epaphroditus is upheld as an example of Christian character. He's put forth as an example of compassionate concern, that Christ-like love for the church. And third and finally and briefly, he is a man of boundless commitment. He is a man of boundless commitment. And really Paul's recommendation of Epaphroditus reaches its zenith right here. Epaphroditus is all in. He is sold out. He is given over. He is totally committed. And Paul wants them to roll out the red carpet for a man like this. When he comes home, they should bring out the band. They are to welcome him. They are to esteem him highly for his work. Look at verse 29. Receive him then, he says, with, in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Paul broadens this beyond Epaphroditus, doesn't he? That word, like him, that's where we get the idea that he's an example. He's an example of these things. And this is the kind of reception they should give to him. They should receive him. They should open their arms. And you think to yourself, why, why would Paul even have to tell them to do this? Why would he have to compel them to take Epaphroditus into their arms with joy and with honor and as an example? And it may have been, you remember that this church was struggling with disunity. There may have been some division of opinion about Epaphroditus. There may have been some in that pocket of the church that didn't think he was the right man for the task in the first place. And it may be that some in the church viewed his return as a failure. The fact that he came back from Paul, something must have happened. And Paul's looking to cut that line of thinking off at the pass. Whatever the call or the cause, Paul, Paul commands the Philippians to welcome him home. Just how far was Epaphroditus willing to go for service to the Lord? We'll look at verse 30. Paul tells us he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete that which was deficient in your service to me. And when Paul says that, he's not being critical of the Philippians. He's not saying your service was deficient. All he's saying is somebody had to bring the money and somebody had to come and minister to my need. And you guys picked Epaphroditus to do that. He completed that. And in completing that, he risked his life. Here's why you should think highly of this man. He came close to death for the cause of Christ. He was that committed. What do we say about, about military when, or, or, well, others too, who die in, 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 in sacrifice to their nation or, you know, we think of first responders perhaps today. What do we say? Soldiers who give their, their lives in the service of their country. We say they made the what? Ultimate sacrifice. This is the ultimate thing about Epaphroditus. This is why I call him a man of boundless commitment. Do you know who Richard Wormbrand is? Richard Wormbrand and his wife Sabina spent many years persecuted and in prison for their faithfulness to the gospel in the 40s and 50s. He's the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs. He says this, quote, a man really believes not what he recites as his creed, but only the things he's ready to die for. I think it's clear from this text that Epaphroditus is not one who simply got sick along the way. This text tells us that now, Epaphroditus is a principled man. He is a man of conviction. He is a man of courage. And Paul says he is a man willing to risk his life for the work of Christ. That word risk means to roll the dice. It is to gamble. What was Epaphroditus like? He counted the cost. He looked at the end and he thought to himself, is it all worth it? I'm willing to roll the dice. For the cause of Christ, I will even give up my life if need be. 
We live in a day when I wonder if anybody believes that anything is worth dying for. And beloved, I would warn you again in a, in a, in a pastoral minute to say to you, are you preparing your heart? This thing could flood down upon this country in a shake. Will you overcome? Have you purposed in your own heart that whatever the cost, I will serve him? Whatever the cost, we will worship. Whatever the cost, I will be in my Bible and I will speak faithfully of the things that I learned there about the gospel to the unbelieving. Whatever the cost, I will serve my brother in Christ. Whatever the cost. And again, I understand that all of that is by the grace of God. And you cannot just anchor yourselves or pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and make these proud determinations about your life. But you better be thinking that way. And you should be practicing it along the way in the smaller ways that God gives you to die to yourself. I mean, if you're unwilling to die to your reputation and ever speak of Christ to anybody, what's the chance you're going to take a bullet for Jesus? Beloved, we need to be preparing ourselves just like Epaphroditus, and we need to, to, to say, you know what, no matter what the cost, I'm willing to serve you, Lord, in this way. And some of you know this at some measure, because, and I know it because you faced hostility for your faith, and you didn't shrink back. Some of you have been to countries where there was legitimate risk. Some of you have given up your daughters to go to countries where there is legitimate risk. Some of you are nervous to fly on a 737 and those very same people have gotten on an old rickety 1954 Cessna and flown into the wilderness of Alaska Headliner hanging down, shaking, bobbing, twisting, sputtering, but you're willing to do it. Why? Because Christ matters. And I'm willing to lose my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have been perhaps in marriages where it was very hostile and yet you have stood firm. Some of you have faced the, tr the, 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 the unspeakable difficulty of children whom you've raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord who have turned on you only, only to question all that they were raised in and you know the heartbreak of it. And yet firm you stand. Epaphroditus is for us. There is something here in the language of this text which says that Paul, Epaphroditus put his life on the line. There was intentionality behind it. There was a willingness on his part to count the cost and to expose himself to known risk. He knew the risk. He counted the cost. The point is, he went anyway. And Paul says, boy, you ought to esteem people like that. You ought to endeavor to be people like that. You ought to hold up people like that. Beloved, the gospel moves forward on the shoulders of bold souls who love Christ more than life itself, more than safety, more than their reputations, more than comfort. And we should allow a man like Epaphroditus to bring conviction to our lives and to, to call us forward to muster more of that kind of sacrificial mindset and faithfulness. That's been my prayer all week is that this life of Epaphroditus might stir us to greater labor and greater boldness and greater faithfulness in the cause of Christ. He was a choice servant of the Lord Jesus. Do you see how this all works together? In Philippians chapter two, you should be able to cling to it. What's the aim of Philippians two? Well, it's this. 
We're called to humility in the pursuit and preservation of unity. Christ has unified us by the cross and the indwelling spirit and we are called in humility to pursue that unity and to preserve that unity. How's that accomplished? Well, your life must be marked by self-forgetfulness and your life must be marked by sacrifice. What does that look like? It looks like Jesus who gave up the glories of heaven temporarily to descend into this earth and give his life on a cross for those who despised him. What does it look like? Well, it looks like Paul who was willing to to pour himself out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of the Philippians' faith because he loves the church of Christ. Why did Jesus give his life? Because he loves his bride. Why did Paul serve the church? Because he loves Christ and he loves the church. And it looks like Timothy who, who... was not after his own interests, but after the interests of of others. He truly was, unlike everybody else. And then we have this man that looks like Epaphroditus. A smaller man, a less known man, but faithful nonetheless. And what is consistent in every one of these examples is a humble devotion to the will of God and faithfulness and obedience and a heartfelt love for the church of Christ, I ask you again, do you love the brethren? It is the mark of the believer. And there was a joyful willingness on everyone's part to die in service to the Lord, and there's an eager willingness to sacrifice themselves for the good of the church and for the glory of Christ. And again, I say to you, those are not special things. Those are run-of-the-mill Christianity. This is what God's people do. This is what it means to live in a manner worthy of your calling that displays the glory of the gospel. This is working out your salvation in fear and trembling as God works to will and to work in you and in us. Beloved, when we live like that, the church will be what it should be and Christ will be exalted in the love of his body and we will prove to be the children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation appearing as lights in the world. Let's pray. Lord, these things rejoice our heart. We delight in you. We delight in the work that you have accomplished for us. We delight in the work of your people. Lord, as you are faithful to work in us and work through us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to abound still more and more, not to shrink back in any way, but Lord, to charge forward as true brothers in Christ, as fellow workers, as sacrificial soldiers, as messengers of the gospel, as ministers to the need of others. Lord, teach us to live sacrificially and in self-forgetfulness as you yourself did, that we might put you on display and that the world might know that we are your disciples. These things we ask in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together. Go forth and do just that. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you.